Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kumar. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we're coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today's episode is part two of our pediatric post-cardiac arrest syndrome series. If you have not yet listened to part one, I would highly encourage you to visit that episode prior to delving into this one. Remember, part one addressed the epidemiology, causes, and pathophysiology of post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Part two today will discuss management and complications related to post-cardiac arrest syndrome in the pediatric ICU. To revisit our index case, we had a 11-year-old previously healthy male who was admitted to the pediatric ICU after cardiac arrest. After stabilization, the patient was taken to head CT, which showed diffuse cerebral edema and diffusely diminished gray-white differentiation, most pronounced in the basal ganglia. He is now 18 to 24 hours post-cardiac arrest, and the team is dealing with hemodynamic changes, arrhythmias, and difficulty with ventilation. The patient's neurological exam still remains poor with fixed 5-millimeter pupils and upper motor neuron signs in the lower extremities. So Pradeep, let's go ahead and get right into it. So Rahul, as we discuss some of the principles in management of patients with post-cardiac arrest syndrome, my first question, and I think this is very frequently asked on rounds, is where do we keep the patient's blood pressure? This is a great question, and it allows for us to go into some of the most recent literature and evidence. Hypotension after ROSC is commonly encountered in children with post-cardiac arrest syndrome. Early hypotension occurred in about one-third of children after cardiac arrest and is associated with lower survival to hospital discharge and unfavorable neurological outcome. So you really want to avoid hypotension. When post-cardiac arrest hypotension is present, it is not clear whether increasing the blood pressure through administration of fluids and ionotropes slash vasopressors can mitigate harm. Despite this, about 40% of patients under 18 receive vasopressor therapy within the first six hours after ROSC. Currently, there is no high-quality evidence to support any single specific strategy for post-cardiac arrest hemodynamic optimization in children. Treatment of post-cardiac arrest hypotension and myocardial dysfunction may be assisted by monitoring and evaluating arterial lactate and central venous oxygen saturation. You really want to pay close attention to oxygen delivery and consumption. Parenteral fluids, ionotropes, and vasoactive drugs are to be used as needed to maintain a systolic blood pressure greater than the 5th percentile for age. Appropriate vasoactive drug therapies should be tailored to each patient and adjusted as needed. So to answer your question, Pradeep, the lower range where we want to maintain our blood pressure is going to be at the fifth percentile for age, and you want to have it a little bit higher than that. Pradeep, I'm going to turn it to you. What about cardiac arrhythmias, such as ventricular tachycardia seen in our patient? So Rahul, the rhythm disturbances that are observed uh, during post-cardiac arrest period, they include uh, premature atrial and ventricular contractions, supraventricular tachycardias, and ventricular tachycardias. 
Heart block is unusual but can be observed as a manifestation of myocarditis. There is inadequate evidence in adults and no published studies in children to support the routine administration of prophylactic antiarrhythmics after return of spontaneous circulation. But rhythm disturbances during this period may warrant therapy. Treatment depends on the cause and hemodynamic consequences of the arrhythmias. Premature depolarizations, both atrial and ventricular, usually do not require therapy other than maintenance of adequate perfusion and normal fluid and electrolyte balance. Ventricular arrhythmias may signify more serious myocardial dysfunction. QT prolonging agents must be avoided. Many of the vasoactive agents used to support myocardial function can increase myocardial irritability and the risk of arrhythmias. Premature atrial or ventricular depolarizations are frequently observed and can be controlled by optimizing the dose of the vasoactive drugs. Bradycardia is frequently seen in targeted temperature management and typically requires no therapy. During post-cardiac arrest care, mechanical circulatory support, ECMO, may be considered if significant cardiorespiratory instability persists despite appropriate volume expansion and administration of inotropes, vasopressors, and if indicated antiarrhythmics. In a study published in CCM2 in 2006, in a PQ population, the use of ECMO within 24 hours of ROSC was associated with reduced mortality. Case series have documented the role of ECMO and ventricular assist device in children with refractory cardiogenic shock or acute fulminant myocarditis, and this was published in Journal of Heart and Lung Transplant in 2016. Rahul, so what about oxygenation and ventilation strategies in our patient with the post-cardiac arrest syndrome? Optimal oxygenation and ventilation of children after ROSC may be hampered by the pathology that precipitated the cardiac arrest. Maybe your patient had drowning or has post-obstructive pulmonary edema. Maybe the patient had some sort of infection that led to acute respiratory distress syndrome. Further management challenges may be caused by aspiration and lung injury occurring during the resuscitation efforts, as well as ventilator-induced lung injury. Additionally, the use of targeted temperature management actually alters a relationship between arterial oxygen saturation and arterial oxygen tension, such that for a given arterial oxygen saturation, the arterial oxygen tension is lower than that observed when the temperature is normal. Remember that the curve of your hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve as you go cooler is going to shift to the left. Hypothermia also decreases the metabolic rate. Thus, carbon dioxide production will be lower at any given minute ventilation. What we also have to consider is post-cardiac arrest blood gas abnormalities are common in children particularly in the first hours after ROSC, as seen in our patient case. Published evidence has actually failed to demonstrate a consistent effect of post-cardiac arrest hyperoxia or hypoxemia on outcome. After ROSC, it is reasonable to aim for a normal PaO2 or the value appropriate for the child's condition. Remember that cyanotic heart disease patients may be a little bit of an outlier. What we want to do is we want to use the lowest possible fraction of inspired oxygen or FiO2 and wean to maintain an oxygen saturation of 94 to 99% as a guideline. In general, in the pediatric ICU population, 
the excess use of oxygen has been associated with poor outcomes. And so we want to be mindful that oxygen therapy is actually a medication. So throughout pediatric cardiac arrest care, hypoxemia must be avoided whenever possible, particularly during oxygen titration. So let's just summarize real quick. You want to avoid hypotension and avoid hypoxemia in your post-cardiac arrest care algorithm. Speaking of algorithms, in 2010, the American Heart Association PALS guidelines recommended prompt arterial blood gas analysis as soon as possible after ROSC and within 10 to 15 minutes of establishing initial mechanical ventilation to guide oxygen administration as well as titration of your mechanical ventilation. These are going to be patients who you are going to need to place an arterial line and get serial gases. And remember, it's not just one gas that you're going to be focusing on. It is going to be a trend of the gases in both your oxygenation and ventilation categories. Just wrapping up here, you know, post-cardiac arrest derangements in PaCO2 are common. On the basis of the available evidence after ROSC, it is reasonable to target normal capnia which is going to be a PaCO2 of around 35 to 45, or a PaCO2 specific for the patient's condition. Some patients with bronchopulmonary dysplasia may live at a higher PaCO2 value because of their chronic respiratory failure and chronic respiratory acidosis. Now, overall, what we want to do is we want to maintain lung protective strategies, and this includes low tidal volume, high PEEP similar to ARDS strategy. And the overall goal is to minimize ventilation-induced lung injury or VILI. All right, Pradeep, we have alluded to TTM or targeted temperature management. Do you mind going into a little bit of depth into this topic? Not a problem. So post-cardiac arrest pyrexia or elevated core body temperature is very common and persistent hyperthermia is associated with unfavorable neurologic outcomes in children. And this was published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine 2010. During post-cardiac arrest care, any fever greater than 38 degrees Celsius must be aggressively treated. To treat the child who remains comatose after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the 2015 American Heart Association PALS guidelines update recommends that it is reasonable either to maintain continuous of normothermia, that is a targeted temperature management between 36 to 37.5 for five days, or maintain two days of continuous hypothermia, targeted temperature management between 32 to 34 degrees Celsius, followed by three days of continuous normothermia, TTM of 36 to 37.5. Now, because increased mortality was associated with temperatures less than 32, if TTM of 32 to 34 is used, meticulous care must be provided to prevent temperatures going below 32 degrees Celsius. This is a great summary. And what we want to do is make sure we look and target certain benchmarks when it comes to targeted temperature management. For out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it is overall recommended to avoid hyperthermia. Rahul, what about the treatment of seizures in patients with post-cardiac arrest syndrome? And can you also comment on sedation, analgesia, and the use of neuromuscular blockade in these patients? Absolutely, Pradeep. So seizures can occur 
in up to 50% of children who remain encephalopathic after achieving ROSC. This was well-validated in a study published in the Journal of Neurology in 2009. Furthermore, about half of children with post-ROSC seizures experience exclusively non-convulsive subclinical seizures. And this is very important. This can actually not be identified by clinical observation and are picked up on your continuous EEG. Seizures could not be predicted from any clinical or resuscitation variables in this study. And seizures were actually associated with unfavorable gross neurological outcomes at discharge, but not with a higher mortality. Because seizures increase metabolic demand, can worsen metabolic function, and can increase intracranial pressure, they can actually contribute to secondary brain injury after cardiac arrest. So let's go into a little bit of management. For these reasons, many clinicians actually aim to treat seizures, although the approach is generally guided by the child's overall medical condition and other prognostic indicators. This is an area where it's a case-by-case basis. Typical acute clinical or electrographic seizures are often treated with benzodiazepines, levetiracetam, or phenytoin. Myoclonic seizures, such as those reported in our patient case, may be refractory to treatment. And this was well validated in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine article in 2016. Providers must be actually alerted for potential adverse effects of anticonvulsants, such as cardiac arrhythmias, QT prolongation, hypotension, as well as respiratory depression. In addition, sedation induced by anti-seizure drugs may complicate the neurological exam. Pain and discomfort needs to be controlled using opioids such as morphine or fentanyl, and you can also use other adjuncts such as Presidex or benzodiazepines. Now, let's talk about neuromuscular blocking agents. These are going to be our agents like vecuronium and pancuronium. With analgesia or sedation, these can be used, and they may actually improve oxygenation and ventilation in case of patient ventilator dyssynchrony or severely compromised pulmonary function. Us as providers, we should really be cautioned with the use of the neuromuscular uh, blockade agents as they can actually mask clinical seizures and impede overall neurological exams. The name of the game when it comes to post-cardiac arrest syndrome is to continuously be reassessing. Especially if targeted temperature management is used, practitioners must be aware that the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of sedatives, hypnotics, and neuromuscular blocking agents will be altered, resulting in prolonged time to both hepatic and renal clearance. And this is a great time to also involve your pharmacist in the PICU to help you decipher the various kinetics in your patient. Pradeep, as we continue to go on, with each organ system, let's go to endocrine. Tell us a little bit about glycemic control in the post-cardiac arrest patient. Rahul, both hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia have been associated with unfavorable outcomes in critically ill children and adults. During post-cardiac arrest care, clinicians should avoid and promptly treat hypoglycemia. Severe hyperglycemia can also be problematic because it can lead to uncontrolled osmotic diuresis, which can exacerbate post-cardiac arrest, volume depletion, and hemodynamic instability. Therefore, it is important to monitor serum glucose concentration 
to treat significant hyperglycemia and to monitor urine output closely. There is currently insufficient published evidence to determine the optimal glucose concentration during post-cardiac arrest care that will maximize neurological outcome. Approximately 30% of critically ill children have relative adrenal insufficiency, but this has not been evaluated in children resuscitated from cardiac arrest. There is insufficient evidence to support the routine use of corticosteroids after cardiac arrest. Patients should be treated for recommendations for critically ill children. So Rahul, how do we manage acute kidney injury in these patients? In a recent retrospective study of 296 children who had post-cardiac arrest care, 37% had acute kidney injury. And 11.5% of that cohort actually had severe AKI. And this is by the definition from the acute kidney injury network criteria. About 5% of patients, Pradeep, in this 300-child study required CRRT within 48 hours of return of spontaneous circulation. And this data is actually found in a 2017 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine article. Now, risk factors for severe AKI after cardiac arrest included abnormal baseline creatinine, lack of a chronic lung condition, in-hospital arrest location, and higher number of doses of epinephrine during arrest as well as worsened post-cardiac arrest acidosis. Throughout post-cardiac arrest care, it is important to monitor kidney function, including urine output and creatinine, because patients are at risk for developing AKI and renal replacement therapy may be indicated in a certain subset of patients. And that's why in our first episode, we advocated for placement of Foley along with your central line as well as arterial line. Now, nephrotoxic medications and medications excreted by the kidneys should be used with caution and dose adjustments may be needed. Serum concentrations of nephrotoxic medications should be closely monitored. And yet again, we need to involve our pediatric ICU pharmacists in these cases. So just before we go into our next question, I just want to summarize a couple elements here. We talked about avoiding hypotension, avoiding hypoxemia avoiding hyperthermia, making sure that we do not have fluctuations in our glucose levels. And finally, in the renal section, we have talked a little bit about monitoring kidney function with urine output and that CRRT may be indicated in a small subset of pop children. Pradeep, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the infectious disease system. Do we need antibiotics during post-cardiac arrest care? Can you just comment on inflammation as well as uh, coagulation? That's a great question, Rahul. Infection is common after pediatric cardiac arrest. Most studies reporting the incidence of infection during post-cardiac arrest care use the children that were enrolled in the TAPCA trial. The incidence of infections varied from less than five infections per 100 days in children with in-hospital cardiac arrest to 11 infections per 100 days for children with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The incidence of culture-proven infection did not differ between patients treated with targeted temperature management of, say, 32 to 34, and those treated with targeted temperature management of 36 to 37.5. 
During ECMO therapy for post-cardiac arrest syndrome, the infection rate was about 10%. Monitoring for signs of infection is very important during post-cardiac arrest care. The decision to obtain cultures and to initiate empirical antimicrobial coverage should follow local PQ protocols. Now, inflammatory pathways are activated as a part of the post-cardiac arrest syndrome, including disturbances of the coagulation cascade. The effect of blocking or modulation of these pathways has been studied in adults and in animal models, but we have not identified any studies involving infants or children. Extensive animal research into blocking or modifying inflammatory pathways have yielded promising results. However, to date, most attempts to translate this work to humans has been unsuccessful. Because inflammation can alter coagulation cascade, providers should monitor for signs of bleeding or coagulopathy. This is particularly important for patients receiving extracorporeal support. At this time, there is insufficient evidence to support specific treatments to modulate inflammatory pathways during post-cardiac arrest care. Just to summarize, infection is common after pediatric cardiac arrest, and we need to be very mindful of the inflammatory pathways that are upregulated during post-cardiac arrest syndrome and the potential that these patients can have abnormalities in the coagulation cascade and have a downstream DIC. Rahul, as we almost near the end of our part two for post-cardiac arrest care, can you comment on rehabilitation and recovery after cardiac arrest? Absolutely. Now, children surviving cardiac arrest are at high risk globally for physical, cognitive, and emotional disabilities that can affect quality of life, family function, activities of daily living, school performance, and employment. I mean, just think about it. This is such a life-changing event for a child as well as a family. Now, there is little evidence on specific interventions during post-cardiac arrest care that will improve functional outcomes of children after cardiac arrest. Small observational studies of children after critical illness or injury suggests that children with anoxic injury have more severe disability and demonstrate less improvement compared with children who have traumatic brain injury. So the lack of oxygen to the brain really is going to be the key element which drives poor neurological outcomes. There is insufficient evidence actually to support specific rehabilitation interventions or the optimal timing of initiation of such interventions. But I would advocate for having PT and OT, as well as our speech colleagues, consulted early so that we can optimally time our rehabilitation measures. On the basis of the benefits of rehabilitation with traumatic brain injury and stroke patients, especially in adults, we would like to advocate for having rehab experts consulted at least within the first 72 hours after cardiac arrest, to tailor a plan of rehabilitation interventions, especially if the child is going to survive cardiac arrest. And this is a great time for you to involve your PMNR, physical medicine and rehabilitation colleagues. Rahul, as we look into the future, what about biomarkers for post-arrest prognostication? I uh, think biomarkers are hot in uh, many different diagnoses. So this was great to delve into the literature. 
Currently, actually, there is insufficient evidence to support the use of serum biomarker concentrations alone to predict outcome after pediatric cardiac arrest. Although there are some biomarkers that have shown promise, they have yet to be validated in prospective pediatric studies after cardiac arrest. So we've already visited elevations in lactate. This can be due to post-cardiac arrest systemic hypoperfusion, but also cerebral hypoperfusion. In several pediatric cardiac arrest studies, higher serum lactate concentrations in the first 12 hours after cardiac arrest were associated with increased mortality and higher concentrations within 12 hours of ROS were modestly predictive of unfavorable outcome. And this was a very well-validated study that was published both in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2009 and then by Dr. Topjian and colleagues in 2013. Now, numerous other promising biomarkers of neurological injury, systemic inflammation, and genetic polymorphisms are currently under evaluation. An ongoing trial is investigating concentrations of NSE, S100B, glial fibrillary acid protein, and ubiquitin carboxy terminal hydroxylase in the first 72 hours after pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. We also are using these biomarkers to see what is the long-term one-year neurological outcomes. And this is a nice study that was published by Prout and colleagues in Current Opinions in Pediatrics in 2017. Rahul, a common question that is asked by families is about prognosis uh, following uh, cardiac arrest. Can you comment on how we can go about prognostication uh, when we have a child who has suffered a cardiac arrest? Absolutely. This is very tough as uh, we do not have that crystal ball. But us as providers must consider multiple variables when attempting to prognosticate outcomes during and after cardiac arrest. And remember, it's not just the initial 12 hours, but it's also looking at the data trends to prognosticate outcomes. What is very important for us to understand is that in a paper published in circulation of, in 2015, there was no single factor that was studied that predicts outcome with sufficient accuracy. So this is, again, a case-by-case basis. Several pre-arrest conditions and therapies have been independently associated with worse survival to discharge and unfavorable neurological outcomes after pediatric cardiac arrest. Worst outcomes from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest are associated with decreased age, some causes of arrest, such as sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS, as well as blunt trauma. Factors associated with lower survival after in-hospital cardiac arrest, so if you had a cardiac arrest inside the hospital, include actually older age, presence of pre-existing conditions, interventions such as tracheal intubation, mechanical ventilation, and use of vasopressors at the time of arrest. And also what was really interesting, and this was a Sentinel paper in JAMA Pediatrics 2017, if you had an in-hospital cardiac arrest during nights or weekend shifts, that was one of the uh, factors which was actually associated with lower survival. Really important for us to kind of bring this to the forefront, especially as we think about staffing models in the pediatric ICU. For both out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and in-hospital cardiac arrest, initial arrest rhythms of bradycardia, ventricular fibrillation, 
pulseless ventricular tachycardia were actually associated with higher survival. And just to review our pals, ventricular fibrillation and pulseless ventricular tachycardia, these are the two rhythms where you want to provide defibrillation. For in-hospital cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, PEA or pulseless electrical activity was also associated with higher survival than asystole. Now, multiple intra-arrest factors are associated with better patient outcomes after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, including if there was a witnessed arrest, there was bystander CPR early on in the course, and less frequent doses of epinephrine. Better patient outcomes from in-hospital cardiac arrest were associated with shorter time to epinephrine administration, the use of eCPR, AHA compliant CPR compression depth, and diastolic blood pressure of greater than 25 in infants and greater than 30 in children. The in-hospital cardiac arrest outcomes and measures are something that we should look at in institutions as we're creating quality intervention studies. We should be tracking shorter time to epinephrine administration, have a CPR coach to really assess CPR compression depth, and then target the diastolic uh, blood pressures we just mentioned. Finally, I did want to talk about the neurological exam. Postcardiac arrest prognostication using neurological examination in children must consider the child's developmental stage and can be complicated by the use of pharmacological agents like we talked about in our sedation and analgesia section. What we also want to revisit is the fact that in adults who are comatose after cardiac arrest, a 2015 AHA uh, paper showed that the earliest time to prognosticate unfavorable neurological outcomes is around 72 hours after arrest. And this is especially seen in patients who were not treated with targeted temperature management. Given the absence of prospective data on the reliability and optimal timing of the clinical examination for neural prognostication in children after cardiac arrest, caution should be used in the interpretation of the clinical neurological exam early after cardiac arrest. So you want to let the dust settle a little bit prior to prognosticating using your uh, neurological exam. The reliability of the clinical neurological exam in predicting neurological outcome improves with the use of serial examinations and with the passage of time after cardiac arrest because the body gets into a new homeostatic state. For children treated with hypothermia, the duration of normothermia after rewarming required to enable reliable interpretation of clinical findings has not been established. Given the limitations of neurological exam in children after cardiac arrest, supporting neurophysiologic tests such as EEGs, neuroimaging, plasma biomarkers, if your institution supports them, are being actively studied in an effort to improve prognostication capabilities. Pradeep, can you just comment briefly on the use of EEG and evoked potentials for post-cardiac arrest prognostication? Absolutely. Children with more severely abnormal EKG background patterns after cardiac arrest tend to have a worse outcome than patients with only mild or moderate background abnormalities. This was published in PCCM 2016 by Topjian et al. The presence of sleep spindles on the initial EEG at 24 hours, whether normal or abnormal morphologically, 
were associated with favorable outcome at six months. The sleep spindles were not present until a median of 12 hours after cardiac arrest, indicating that a long period of assessment rather than a brief EEG may be necessary to evaluate for sleep spindles. Older and smaller studies have reported that birth suppression, excessive discontinuity, severe attenuation, lack of reactivity, and generalized epileptiform discharges were associated with unfavorable prognosis. Conversely, rapid EEG improvement, reactivity, and normal sleep patterns were associated with favorable prognosis. The 2015 American Heart Association PALS guidelines update recommends that EEGs be performed within the first seven days after pediatric cardiac arrest it should be con- and used for prognosticating neurological outcome at the time of hospital discharge, but should not be used as the sole criterion. Although alpha coma is often considered in relation to anoxic encephalopathy and unfavorable prognosis, it is a non-specific pattern that can occur with a wide variety of pathogenesis, and outcome is probably chiefly dependent on that pathogenesis. Alpha coma that is reactive to stimulation may indicate a more favorable prognosis. There is insufficient evidence to support the routine use of evoked potentials for neuroprognostication after cardiac arrest. Rahul, what about neuroimaging for post-cardiac arrest prognostication? Well, I did want to briefly touch on MRI. It is shown that MRI actually has superior accuracy to the CT scan in assessing regional injury severity resulting from hypoxic ischemic injury. The interval between cardiac arrest and the MRI influences the interpretation because lesions have typical time trajectories for appearance and resolution after the insult. Fink and colleagues uh, published a, a small series of patients, about 28 patients in neurocritical care in 2013, which showed abnormalities in the basal ganglia on conventional imaging and in brain lobes with DWI in the first two weeks after cardiac arrest. And those patients who had these changes in the basal ganglia and in the uh, brain lobes on DWI, they had actually unfavorable outcomes. Now, there have been studies that have looked at MRI spectroscopy, and it was found that increased brain lactate and decreased brain N-acetylaspartate concentrations were associated with worse outcome after pediatric brain injury, including cardiac arrest. Now, available published evidence right now is insufficient to identify MR spectroscopy characteristics on which to base prognostication, and no real prospective studies have been present. Pradeep, you are an experienced clinician, and I really wanted to pick your brain about your clinical pearls that you use at the bedside when you're managing a child who comes in after cardiac arrest. So Rahul, I know we covered a lot of uh, ground on management of the patient with the post-cardiac arrest syndrome, and sometimes it becomes very difficult to remember all the things that we have gone through. So here are some useful uh, clinical pearls. First of all, I would measure oxygenation and target uh, SpO2 of 94 to 99%, measure the arterial PCO2 and target about 35 to 45 uh, set up specific hemodynamic goals during post-cardiac arrest care and review them daily. Monitor serum lactate, urine output, and central venous oxygen saturation to help guide therapies. Consider early brain imaging to diagnose treatable causes of cardiac arrest. Aggressively treat seizures 
avoid hypoglycemia. Apply targeted temperature management 32 to 34 for 48 hours and then maintain a targeted temperature of 36 to 37.5 for three days after rewarming or apply a targeted temperature management of 36 to 37.5 for five days if patient is unresponsive after ROSC. Always consider multiple modalities, clinical and other, over any other single predictive factor prior to post-cardiac arrest prognostication. This concludes our episode on post-cardiac arrest syndrome. We hope you found value in this podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamat, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Timania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.